1: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's film week on LAist 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Claudia Puig and Andy Klein Claudia is the president of the L.A. Film Critics Association, and Andy is reviewer for A.V. Club. Also joining us is Charles Solomon, animation critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with yet another Scream film. This is Scream 6, written and directed by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. Andy, what do you think of the latest entry in this series?
2: Uh... I think this is the first one that really is a step down. Uh, it's still okay, but uh, in, in, the hook here is that um, uh, Sam Carpenter, Sam, Samantha, played by Melissa Barrera, has now moved to New York uh, because her sister, her half-sister Tara, has uh, started college in New York and she wants to protect her since Sam is the daughter of the original Scream killer and she killed people in the last one. And there, there's a whole Internet meme that she's the real killer and she framed her boyfriend, all this stuff. And, of course, the killers show up in New York. Uh, Or you wouldn't have a movie. Or you wouldn't have a movie. And I I wonder if this is an homage to uh, Friday the 13th, part six, which was Jason Takes Manhattan. Okay. Um, But given that this film is filled with the the same meta-references of everybody discussing the tropes of horror films and all this, the problem with the film is that there are plot holes you could drive a truck through, which... (laughs) Which, even though the films have always been kind of contrived, uh, there are times here where it's just like, oh, we're being threatened, let's walk at night alone to the police station. (laughs) Which TV adds a parody, of course. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, totally insane and... There's a big red herring and a big tw- twist at the end, which also brings up issues that just seem unbelievably unlikely that the police wouldn't have caught on to this. Having said that, it's sort of a fun ride and the suspense scenes are done well. And, you know, the the meta stuff is still funny. It's just not so funny as it was in Scream 1, Scream 2. When it and, was fresh. Yeah, and even the last Scream, which didn't have a numeral on it.
1: Scream 6, written and directed by James Vanderbilt and Guy Busick. I'm sorry, written by the pair, directed by Matt bettinelli Olpen and Tyler Gillette. Uh, stars Melissa Barrera. It's rated R, uh, and the film came out in wide release last week. Shazam! Fury of the Gods, action-adventure film. Starring Zachary Levy, Helen Mirren, and Lucy Liu. Directed by David F. Sandberg. Claudia.
3: I must confess, I didn't see the first Shazam, um, and I don't think you have to. <laughs> um, this is not a complicated story. Um, I'm guessing that this is a bigger but not necessarily better one. Uh, the superheroes are teens and tweens, so this the humor is appropriately sophomoric. Um, but there's something disconcerting about a middle-aged man, Zachary Levi, or I guess he pronounces it that right, Zachary Levi is 42. He has an alter ego who's 17, um, and that alter ego, Billy Batson, is um, it, it, so he he uh, the alter ego is kind of a uh, insecure, anxious guy who's kind of serious. But his but the Zachary Levi Shazam character is this cringingly bratty and kind of smarmy guy. Um, so it just doesn't work. He does a lot of shtick. It feels very mannered. Um, You know, usually when you see the alter ego of a superhero, their personality is somewhat similar. But, you know, I'd say the 17-year-old is more mature than the 42-year-old. The villainous folks are a trio of women, a millennial, a Gen Xer, and a Gen -er, Zer, and they're all pretty mighty, led by the venerable Helen Mirren. Um, So it's fun to see just for Helen Mirren, I think. Um, And then Lucy Liu and Rachel Zegler are the other sisters. Um, and the action sequences are mind-numbing. They're long. They're tedious. The best thing about it is watching Dame Helen Mirren because she always commits she's to always everything she does. Everything she's, always she she's, everything she's always the did. best. You know, Whether she's playing the queen or whether she's in something like this, it's much more schlocky. She gives it her all. She never looks. seems like she's phoning it in. So I really appreciate that. Oh, and there's also a stampede of fearsome unicorns. Um, so for little girls who love unicorns. Wait a minute.
1: That's an oxymoron. Fearsome unicorns?
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. This may put every little girl off their unicorns unicorn fetish um but um yeah neither mirror nor the unicorns are really enough to to make this worth seeing
1: shazam fury of the gods rated pg-13 in wide release jane fonda and lily tomlin team yet again they've been a a regular duo in so many productions moving on is the latest also starring richard roundtree and malcolm mcdowell paul whites the writer and director of the comedy claudia
3: Well, it's always a pleasure to see Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin and Richard Roundtree on screen. Um, So some of the tonal inconsistencies can be forgiven. Uh, This is a dark comedy. It's by Paul Weitz. Um, and you'll remember Paul White's with the White's brothers did um, American Pie and then went on to do a much better movie about a boy and has since done kind of, you know, a lot of different films that have been adapted from books. Just nothing that he does not have a type of film. Um, what I like best about this film is that it, it, it has kind of a, a pretty authentic emotional arc. None of these people, and they're all over 70, are caricatures of old people. In fact, the youngest one is Malcolm McDowell, and he's 79. So most of them are in their <laughs> 80s. and uh, yeah. Um, Mere um, just mere whippersnapper. Yeah, but they're, you know, they 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 aren't, it isn't like, oh, look at those funny old people without their teeth. They're rocking in a chair. You know, all those corny caricatures that you see. Um, and obviously, uh, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda have a lot of chemistry. We saw that in Grace and Frankie. I guess I didn't see 80 for Brady, but... That's um, for the best. Yes, I think so. Uh, I intentionally did not see it. This played at TIFF, and it could have come out at any time in the last six months. It's interesting that it came out while 80 for Brady, I guess, is still around or just afterwards. Anyway, the, the storyline, here is that they're old college friends they they go to the funeral of their dear third friend who is married to um, to Malcolm McDowell and something terrible happened between Mal- Malcolm McDowell and Jane Fonda I, I will say no more but um but she, I will say that she wants to kill him. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's kind of interesting. It's it's dark. I think there's tonal problems. But overall, I, I kind of enjoyed it.
1: Moving yeah. on, Andy.
2: Yeah. it's uh, I, I thought it was OK. It's sort of weak tea. But yes, they're not caricatures. Um, and yes, Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda are great together. And Malcolm McDowell is a terrific villain Always. in this. Yes. And uh, he's just so... So awful, and the plot resolves itself in a way that I didn't see coming, and that is totally satisfying.
3: Yeah,
1: the film is moving on, uh, comedy, if if with darker elements, uh, written and directed by Paul White's, rated R. It's in select theaters. The Magician's Elephant, an animated comedy, directed by Wendy
4: Rogers, Charles. Well, there have been some shakeups at. Netflix over the last year where they changed management and ended their production deals on a lot of animated films. And you wonder why they kept this and got rid of work by, say, Glenn Keane and Sergio Pablo, who were such talented artists. Remember back in the day of uh, DVD and video films when a major animated film like Little Mermaid would come out it would be a sort of a cheap knockoff about the Princess Uriel or something that would try and use the same tropes and, but a really low budget, low end version of it. This feels like one of those, except there isn't anything particular it's knocking off. It's apparently based on a popular children's book, but it's very heavy handed with a whole string of messages about you have to believe and family's important and anything's possible, nothing is impossible once you prove it's possible. Uh, And a lot of things like that. And it also kind of sums up what I don't like about so much American animation. Rendering is cheap and easy to do. So everything is textured. Everybody's got strands of hair. The old advisor figure with Mandy Patinkin's voice has a beard that looks like uh, you ratted a Brillo pad with all the individual strands. But the designs are generic. The animation is uninspired. And it, it just did... Just about nothing for me. We're talking about The Magician's Elephant,
1: which is streaming on Netflix, the animated comedy-adventure directed by Wendy Rogers. Martin Hines adapted it from Kate DiCamillo's 2009 children's book, The Magician's Elephant, is rated PG. Uh, Champions, uh, which is a a sports comedic drama starring Woody Harrelson, Caitlin Olson, Ernie Hudson, Bobby Farrelly, the director. Um, Just give us, like, 30 seconds, if you will, and then we'll come back to it, Andy.
2: Okay. Uh, Woody Harrelson uh, is an assistant coach for a minor league basketball team. He gets in a fight with his boss. He gets fired. He gets drunk. He gets arrested. And he has to take care of a team of uh, developmentally challenged kids.
1: All right. We'll get more into Champions. The film is written by Mark Rizzo. It's rated PG-13 and in select theaters. We have many other films to talk about with Claudia, Andy, and Charles as we continue with Film Week here on LAist 89.3.
5: Support for L.A.S. comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradicion that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
1: It's Film Week on LAST 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Charles Solomon, Andy Klein, and Claudia Puig. Andy was just in the middle of telling us about the sports comedy *Champions*. Woody Harrelson, Caitlin Olson, Ernie Hudson star. Bobby Farrelly directed from Mark Rizzo's screenplay. Andy, you're saying it's a, a sports film where uh, the fired coach ends up coaching a team of uh, developmentally um, uh, challenged uh, players? Is that yes. right?
2: All yeah, right. and the players the, are all all except possibly one of them is, in fact, developmentally challenged. It's made very clear with nine out of the ten in the press notes, and the fact that they didn't make it clear with the tenth makes me think that he was a ringer. But uh, uh, basically, this is your your heartwarming sports comedy, and uh, you could argue that, that it's exploitative in that, of course, the main function— Of All these people on the team is to make Woody Harrelson a better person. But having said that, a lot of the team members get their own character arcs and and in fact develop in various ways. And some of them are really charismatic. Uh, There's a young woman with Down syndrome whose name I don't have at my fingertips who just steals every scene she's in. Um, It's a remake of a Spanish film from about five years ago that won Best Picture at the Spanish Oscars.
1: Campeones? Yes,
2: Campeones, and and was a huge hit. Uh, I actually think that the few changes they made, it's a slavish remake, but the few changes they made I actually thought were improvements.
1: Champions is the film. It's rated PG-13. It's in select theaters. Uh, La Seville uh, is uh, a film that is set in northern Mexico. It stars Arciela Ramirez and Álvaro Guerrero. The film's directed by Teodora Mijay and written by Abacuc Antonio de Rosario and Teodora Mijay. Claudia, what did you think of La Seville?
3: I like this film quite a bit. It presents a story that's uh, too tragically familiar and relevant in Mexico today, where thousands of people are being disappeared and femicide is all too common, of course. It highlights the despair experienced by the families and the indifference that's uh, evinced by the authorities. Uh, It centers on uh, Cielo, who is played by Arcelia Ramirez. She's really good. Um, She starts out as, you know, she's a mom, just a mom. You know, nothing, she's not giving many other characteristics, just a devoted mother. And then she becomes this sort of ruthless activist where she, it evolves in a natural way. doesn't go from like A to Z. But she starts this this decisive search for her kidnapped daughter in this unnamed town in Mexico and is ignored by the authorities. Um, she takes matters into her own hands, and it leads her down this horrible path of unspeakable violence. Um, it focuses on her emotional roller coaster. The camera is very, stays very close so we don't ever lose sight of her as she transforms into this avenging um, activist. And, and the events unfold Uh, In a very tense way, you're on the edge of your seat. Um, It was inspired by true events, tragically enough. Um, It's a, you know, a very compelling cartel kidnapping drama. It has a kind of a verite feeling to it, um, which is appropriate. The director, Teodora Mija, uh, really gives this harrowing story kind of a documentarian's gaze, I think. And it's
1: her uh, feature directorial debut, yes, I Yes, and
3: she does a beautiful job. It's just a really solid descent into every parent's worst nightmare.
1: We're talking about the film La Seville uh, from Mexico. The film is in Spanish with English subtitles. It's unrated, and you can see it at Lemley's Glendale Theater as well as Lemley's Royal in West Los Angeles. The Forger uh, stars uh, Louis Hoffman, and Jonathan Berlin. The film is written and directed by Maggie Perrin. Uh, The film is a German historical drama. Andy, the forger.
2: Uh, This is a, a, a pretty interesting film in that it expressed things about World War II I didn't know, which is that as late as 1943, you have openly identified Jews working in Berlin and not yet rounded up. And the hero is one of those Jews, and he connects through uh, sort of the Jewish underground uh, to start forging identity cards for people to get out. Because he's a graphic artist, all he's really doing is is sort of very carefully painting the seal that is on the photograph that in the in the identity card. Yeah, and. At the same time, he does some unbelievably brazen things, like pretending to be a Wehrmacht officer (laughs) to pick up girls. Uh, It's uh, really quite gripping. Again, I I had plot problems only because I was confused as to, does everybody know he's Jewish? And eventually I realized that certainly the government does and most of the people interacting with him. Uh, which was not something I expected, but it's a very clever film, and he was a very clever guy who pulled this off and managed to escape in the long run by his his wits and by his ability.
1: It's based on his uh, the real person's yeah. memoir, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. The movie is The Forger, written and directed by Maggie Perrin. The film's unrated in German with English subtitles. You can see it at Lemley's Royal in West LA and Lemley's Town Center in Sino. Sanson and Me, a Mexican documentary, directed by Rodrigo Reyes. Claudia.
3: Yes. Um, This is kind of a a look at uh, Mexican-American immigration. And Rodrigo Reyes um, examines it, examines immigration and incarceration through the story of this young undocumented man who was caught up in gang violence. Um, Reyes met this. So it's a a documentary, but it's creatively done. Um, Reyes met Andrade when he was his court appointed interpreter, because that's how he supported himself between making films. He's been a documentary filmmaker. And he was drawn to him by sort of their shared emigre status Um, um, and then he started thinking about him. He found he couldn't get him out of his head after he had been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, he had a part. He was the driver in a gang-related shooting. And so he um, really decided he, he decided he wanted to make a film about him because he sort of saw it as he was 19 years old when this happened. His life was being thrown away. And he said, you know, I really want to make this documentary. Unfortunately, the prison bureaucracy didn't allow him to get in and interview him. So he was denied permission. Permission to do these on-camera interviews, so he decided he came up with this, this sort of meta-documentary uh, idea where they're like reenactments, and he gets actors. But it's not just your ordinary reenactment with actors; in that he get some most of the actors are people who he's. Sanson was related to back in Mexico. So some of the key characters in his life, like his his brother or his, his sister plays his mother and that kind of thing, because so, they knew the elements of the story. And what makes this really work, I think, is that he's trying to piece together what was it about his life that led him to this point, that led him to commit this crime. You know, was he sort of doomed from the start in that his father died young, he was an alcoholic, his mother had pro- you know, all these problems that happened, he was poor. And then here's Reyes, who's an immigrant who has had a different life and, you know, there but for the grace of God kind of thing. Um, it's a really intriguing way to make a, a film. Um, and it's, you know, he came up with a creative solution to his plans being thwarted. Um, sometimes his stylistic choices are a little unwieldy. I think he injects himself into it. And while that's interesting up to a point, um, it, you know, maybe undercuts some of the dramatic elements of Sanson's story. Um, but other moments are quite moving and quite lyrical. There's even some humor Um, And it's, you know, a really well done and sort of profound examination of, you know, a childhood and a life that could lead to incarceration and also to a portrait of, you know, two very different Mexican immigrants.
1: The documentary Sanson and Me is unrated. It's at Lemley's Glendale, Lemley Monica Film Center and Lemley's Claremont uh, uh, starting uh, for one day on Monday, Sanson and Me. The documentary Kubrick
4: by Kubrick is directed by Gregory
1: Monroe Charles.
4: This is an intriguing but frustrating film, and I wish the director had shown some of the imagination Claudia described in the last documentary. Uh, Kubrick was notorious for not giving interviews and not talking to people, but there was one French critic whose writing he liked. And so this critic has apparently, hours of quarter-inch tape of Kubrick talking about his films and his work. The problem is there are no visuals. So they do all these cutesy, way out of left field, meta kind of things like close-ups of typewriters and of the tape recorder, and they've got a really cheesy version of Mm -hmm. the final room that the uh, Dave, the astronaut is in at the end of 2001 with none of the Louis Kahn's beauty to it. So you've got some clips from the films and you've got Kubrick saying really interesting things like why on earth did he cast Ryan O'Neill in Barry Lyndon? (laughs) Um, But there's nothing to look at. And you feel like this might make a better book with an accompanying CD. Or Or uh, an audio (laughs) book. Yeah, Yeah, or a podcast. Kubrick
1: by Kubrick. Andy. Uh,
2: Yeah, Charles is pretty much on the mark on this. I mean, I did think there were some points of interest. Uh, He doesn't really talk about his films that much. He talks in very general terms. Uh, But there are uh, scenes, home movies of him with his family looking totally normal which you don't expect from Kubrick, and then at the end, home movies of him from when he's just like four years old. And he's also totally normal, and you don't expect that from Kubrick. Uh, It's very short. It's only a little over an hour. And uh, I I thought it was worth seeing, but it is thin.
1: Kubrick by Kubrick is available on demand starting next Tuesday. Kubrick by Kubrick, the documentary. Coming up, Pinball, the man who saved the game. A dr- dramatic uh, look at uh, journalists who actually overturned New York's ban on pinball in the 1970s. All coming up on Film Week on L.A. at 89.3.
5: Support for L.A.S. comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
1: It's Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Andy Klein, Claudia Puig, and Charles Solomon. Pinball, the man who saved the game, is the story of GQ magazine writer Rogers Sharp who was a pinball wizard and helped overturn a decades-long ban on pinball in New York City. The film stars Mike Feist, and it's written and directed by the Bragg brothers, Austin and Meredith. Andy, what'd you think?
2: Uh, This is a subject really dear to my heart. Uh, I started when I was 10 years old, as soon as I could see over the, the edge of the machine. I spent most of my college years doing this. I totally understand the obsession. Um... And uh, it's got an interesting narrative structure in that it's mostly a biopic, but there are insertions of what we think is the real Roger Sharp, but actually turns out to be another director just playing an older version of Roger Sharp, uh, commenting on what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong in the film and how they shouldn't exaggerate. Uh, It makes a great case for pinball. Uh, which, of course, ironically, almost totally disappeared from the world very shortly after this decision because, uh, you know, video games came in and pinball machines just became uh, obsolete, essentially, which is tragic. But in the
1: late 70s, pinball was huge.
2: For a while, yeah, but then video games totally knocked it out. uh, And uh, they take up less space, even those big console games. Uh, they were very. I don't. I wouldn't know where to go play pinball in LA yeah, right now. They broke down
1: a lot. Yeah,
2: yeah, because yeah, and fixing them was always an issue. Uh, I I found it totally enjoyable. Um, there's a romance that goes through it that's effective and uh, uh, an altogether likable kind of film.
1: Pinball: The Man Who Saved the Game, starring Mike Feist. Written and directed by the Bragg brothers, Austin and Meredith. It's unrated. It's at the Galaxy Theater Riverside and streaming on Apple TV+. Luther, the Fallen Son stars Idris Elba. Uh, Jamie Payne is the director. It's based on the BBC TV series Luther. Claudia, what did you think?
3: I liked it. Uh, Fans of the long running BBC series will will likely enjoy seeing Elba back um, playing this iconic character. And yet, I've never watched that show. Now I kind of want to, which is a sign that this was probably effective. Um, But uh, probably not as good as the series because you don't get to develop the character as much. But I will say um, it's a procedural police thriller, it hooks you in, particularly in the first hour. And it's basically a cat and mouse game between Idris Elba, who's always great, and Andy Serkis. Um, both of them are at the top of their game. The film kind of runs out of steam at the end. Um, there's this kind of overlong conclusion and a few too many physical brawls between Andy Circus and Idris Elba. And, if you, you know, when you think of that, they, they're pretty mismatched. Um, But uh, and there's a lot that's made out of Luther being disgraced for his unconventional methods. He ends up in prison, and Cynthia Revo, who's a very high level cop, who's always great to watch too, kind of makes a big deal out of that. And you know, you're just going, of course, he knows how to solve these crimes. So just you know, get him out of prison. (laughs) Um, Oh, and I will say that Circus wears—he he he is the bad guy, and he's um, the super rich like meticulously maniacal psychopath who's given to these bouts of friendly courtliness and he wears a wig that's almost a crime in and of itself. It's (laughs) such a bad wig. It's this big poofy thing. Um, It has whiffs of David Fincher's Seven. um, Yeah. And also, unfortunately, has whiffs of like Saw, um, you know, kind of the creepy torture. Exactly. Um, So, you know, the psycho killer live streams his gruesome murders and um, he orchestrates these convoluted scenarios. But overall, it's, you know, uh, it's always great to see Idris Elba. There's a great little wink to the Bond thing, too. I don't think that's going to happen based on this little wink.
1: Luther, The Fallen Son is rated R and it's streaming on Netflix. Inside, a thriller starring Willem Dafoe. It's directed by Vasilis Katsupis. Uh, Andy, what would you think of Inside?
2: Uh, this is about Willem Dafoe plays an art thief who is broken into a an unbelievably high-tech apartment, a billionaire who's off in Kazakhstan for a vacation or something. And uh, something goes wrong with his escape there because the system, the security system, which they've hacked, shorts out or something, and he's trapped in this place. There's almost no food. Uh, There's almost no water. For some reason, the faucets have turned off. It's so high-tech that it gets silly. I mean, one of the most obvious things he could do to get attention doesn't occur to him for days and days or even weeks. It's unclear how long he's in there, which is to set a fire under the fire alarm, which just triggers sprinklers that flood the apartment, but doesn't notify anybody. Which I find not credible, even if the system has has gone down. Uh, the problem with this film is that it is so grueling. It's it's a combination of Louis Malle's Elevator to the Gallows. And uh, Demon Seed, the Nicholas Rogue film, where basically you're at the at the mercy of this machine, and uh, because it's a one person film, and he's going through hell, does he have to go through hell for over an hour and forty minutes? <laughs> I mean, it really begins to drag as he's doing the same tasks over and over.
1: Inside, starring Willem Dafoe, is rated R in select theaters. Boston Stranglers, starring Kira Knightley, Carrie Kuhn, and Alessandro Nivola. Uh, the film's written and directed by Matt Ruskin. Claudia.
3: Yeah, this is an effective um, sort of crime thriller in that uh, little genre of like journalism crime dramas like Spotlight or Zodiac. It's not as good as either one of those, but it's perfectly involving. Um, Loretta McLaughlin is uh, a real-life journalist who was the first to sort of connect the dots in the Boston Strangler murders. um, And she um, is played by Keira Knightley. And um, she joins up with another uh, woman reporter. And, you know, you see the sexism. It feels like it could have been, she said, in the 60s. Um, it's, it focuses on these two women reporters who are working hard to break the story. They're both married working moms, and they're facing all manner of sexism. Um, and it's not a film that, that, you know, wants to go into the mind of the serial killer. It's... Um, it's not even bemoaning the state of society that breeds serial killers. It's not trying to, you know, do any of that. What it's really trying to do is show the tenacity of these two women, um, the reporters, and um, rather than make it a biopic of Boston Strangler, which has been done. Um, so it, it's effective. Um, it, you know, you watch Kieran Knightley is, is quite good. Um, Carrie Coon, who plays the Gene Cole, the other reporter, is also very good. Um, And, you know, they deal with not just the sexism in the newsroom, but uh, lots of red tape, uh, police red tape, police not doing their job well, you know, kind of just wanting it to be over with. And they kind of, you know pin it on uh, Albert DeSalvo, when it's maybe possibly more complicated than that. I didn't realize that the Boston Strangler, 12 of the murders have been remain unsolved. Only one of them was wow. t- tied to DeSalvo, and so they, they tell you that at the end. So it's a solid drama about these two determined journalists. Um, and I think I read somewhere that Kira Knightley said that this is a love song to female investigative journalists. So as a journalist, not an investigative one, but as a journalist, I love that. Um, and... You know, I think overall it's all about the acting of the two women and also Alessandra Navolo as a, as a police detective. Um, and it had kind of an open ending. Um, and you find out that these two journalists are still working in journalism. So that's also laudable.
1: Boston Strangler is the film. It's rated R, starring Kira Knightley, written and directed by Matt Ruskin. The film is streaming on Hulu. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. We, of course, are delighted to have you with us and appreciate your financial support for all that we do on LAist 89.3. I just remind you of the tremendous work that our critics do each and every week in bringing you the reviews of the films on which they spend so much of their time.